morning we're going to uh, continue to look at the problem of temptation, specifically as it relates to sexual behavior. Uh, one, I don't think you can go a day, or at least I have found that you cannot go a day without hearing about or reading about the sexual behavior of, that, of others. And uh, I think if you look at the headlines recently, uh, you'll see that to be true. They're filled with this type of, of uh, activity, uh, problems that relate from it. And let me just share a couple of headlines with you. This has taken place over the last two weeks, and you, have may, you may have seen or heard this yourself. Uh, there was an article in the LA Times this past week about therapists, um, psychologists, or, or counselors who take advantage of their, um, their clients and uh, exploit them sexually. The, the topic was case histories of sexual exploitation that take place in counseling sessions. Uh, we talked about the coach and his wife that was indicted uh, for having sex with their players in the city of Hemet. In the city of Seattle, the Seattle Supersonics, several members of the Supersonics, several members of the Cincinnati Bengals were indicted and charged with rape, and there was an argument of rape versus sexual consent. Magic Johnson, we read about and heard about uh, for the last couple of years. Will Chamberlain, sexual conquest, the rape trial of Mike Tyson. Uh, this past week in Corona Del Mar, a pastor was suspended for sexual misconduct. In Bel Air, a pastor resigned for sexual misconduct. There was a priest accused of molestation uh, that involved his choir members over a period of 20 years. We saw this to the spur posse and its continual exploitation of the things that have taken place. 20, the 2020 interview, <laughs> that was not my heart. <laughs> what in the world? But... Uh, uh, the 2020 interview, how many of you saw that the other night on the Spur Posse? They were on again being interviewed, picked up in limos and taken all over the place. It's just an interesting situation. Um, there's a recent sex survey that came out that we'll tie into. Hey, someone else hears that, right? Okay. Man. See that? This thing... Oh, you don't? I don't either. Uh, there's an article in the paper about teens and AIDS, uh, Toronto, Canada, tainted blood. What are you doing to me? Yeah, nothing. Okay, good. Oh, and then yesterday in the sports section, there was a boxer who was stripped of his title because he tested HIV positive. And uh, so that is the first of what will probably be many. And then the uh, homosexual agenda is continually in the news. Um, it's interesting that survey that came out indicated that 1% one, 1%, uh, of the population have indicates that they're homosexual, which is a far cry from the 10% that homosexuals claim. And also it's fascinating to me that 1% of the population could get a special audience with the President of the United States. Um, we read about things like this, we hear about it, and yet there's some underlying problems that need to be discussed. Um, homosexuals' integration into the military service. If I was an African-American, I'd be quite offended by the fact that they're trying to, uh, to use sexual preference and behavior and somehow or another tie it into a racial issue, and it certainly is not. You know, they try to compare it to the integration of the services in the 50s. What an insult that is. And uh, that shouldn't be allowed to even be mentioned in the same conversation. And yet, for some reason or another, it continues to be mentioned in such light. And I think it's time that people stand up and they make some statements about such nonsense. We see things of that nature. Anyway, these are just topic, These are headlines that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. And the question that I ask, is there any hope dealing with a problem that's so rampant? And you have to ask yourself the question of what is right, what is wrong? Is there anything right anymore or anything wrong? Are we really left as an individual, are we really left to decide such matters 
that, reach, that have far-reaching impact into society, are we really to believe that we're to decide such far-reaching impact items on our society and left to decide these things on an individual basis? That's what we're being led to believe. And it's nonsense. And, uh, and, and we can illustrate that. We took the kids the other day and we saw Huck Finn, the movie Huck Finn. How many saw Huck Finn? Or how many have heard of Huck Finn? We'll get everybody involved here. Tom Sawyer, anybody? Anybody read a book? <laughs> Go to school recently? Anywhere? But here's a line that, there, here's a line that was in the movie, and I appreciated this. Jim, the, the slave, is talking to Huck Finn. And he says to him this particular statement, talking about the heinous industry of slavery. He said, Huck, just because you're told something is right, and you grow up believing that something is right, that does not make it right. And I appreciated that statement that was made because what he was saying, in essence, is there is truth. There is absolute. There is truth that goes beyond. There's a moral code that is greater than our individual freedom to choose. Our Constitution says we all have the, the, um, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But my right to any of these things cannot interfere with your right to the same thing. So I cannot choose that which is going to jeopardize your life or jeopardize your freedom, or jeopardize your pursuit of happiness. And so there's a greater social issue that's involved. There's a greater cause than our own individual rights to choose. And we need to understand that, particularly in this area as we're going to look at it. There is truth. The problem is, what is truth? What is truth? Uh, with regards to temptation, with regards to seduction, with regards to sexual behavior, and the reality of it all is that the Bible tells us, and there's enough external evidence that concurs, that the Word of God is true. That the Bible is true. The evidence is overwhelming that it's true. And we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about right, about wrong, in the areas of sexual behavior. How do we keep from making uh, bad choices? How do we keep from falling into the trap of wrongful sexual behavior? Because whether we want to believe this or not, there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong. And they'll always be that way. They were always that way. God designed them that way. And they're not going to change based on what we believe to be right or wrong. Our beliefs have nothing to do with it. Truth is truth and transcends personal belief. You can believe something is not true, and it is true, regardless of what you believe. It doesn't change the truth. So what we need to do is take a look at objective evidence that is greater than our own understanding and look at it and analyze it and weigh it for what it is. How do we continue or how do we keep from falling into the problems that we're talking about? And the reality of it is there are, there are behaviors sexually that are right and there are behaviors sexually that are wrong. We need to understand the characteristics of seduction that lead us to making wrong decisions. It's kind of like, you know, people fall into this trap and then they're asking themselves the question, how in the world did this happen to me? How did it happen? Sexual behavior that is wrong. The Bible is very specific about it. We don't, won't go into detail, but it's very simple. All sexual activity outside of, of heterosexual marriage is wrong. Whether it be adultery, whether it be premarital sex, whether it be uh, incest or rape, uh, whether it's bestiality, whether it's any of those things, the Bible is very clear. That's wrong behavior. Plain and simple. Regardless of why you do it, regardless of what happened, what's caused it, doesn't make any difference. It's wrong and we're still guilty under the laws of God. So what we need to do is understand how to prevent ourselves from falling into this trap and doing things that are wrong before God and His standards. And we'll take a look as we go through it. We saw, we saw in detail the last time that we met that the uh, first characteristic of seduction is verbal compliments. And these are compliments that we make to one another with a hidden agenda. That is, that we're telling people things that they want to hear for the purposes of ultimately having a sexual relationship with them. 
when the Spur Posse was interviewed on 2020 on Friday evening, uh, one of the things that was mentioned by the gals who were victims of this particular situation was how complimentary these guys were. And they would say how nice they were. Oh, you're so nice looking and you're this or that. Or, hey, you know what? You'll never have anything better than me. Why wouldn't you want to you know, go to bed with me? And they were very complimentary about everything. And that was one of the traps that they used to get these gals into bed with them so that they could rack up another point. You see, it's ridiculous when you think about it. But you see, that, see, what's so funny about it is that's blatant and that's obvious, right? You know, we can look at a situation like that and say, hey, these guys, they knew what they were doing. They were complimenting these young gals for the purpose of having sex with them. But, oh, adults, we get much more sophisticated about how we handle it, don't we? But ultimately, we're looking for the same result. It's just how we go about it that's different. What's upsetting is that they're so blatant about it, whereas you and I, and some of the tricks that we've used, oh, we're very, you know, we're sophisticated. We are sophisticated uh, horn dogs. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, we know how to word it right. But the whole purpose is for the same behavior. It's to get something out of someone else. And so verbal compliments, the Bible warns, are those compliments that are used to just accomplish one purpose, and that is to get somebody else to have sex with you in however shape, form, or manner that it is. Second thing is uh, sensual conversations. Conversations that specifically revolve around discussing sex. Those conversations should never take place, as far as God's people are concerned, with with the opposite sex or even among our own sex. There's no room for sexual conversations to take place among the people of God. Unless it's for the purpose of discussing and declaring truth, for the purpose of teaching what is right or wrong. You know what, we just have this lax attitude about how we discuss things with one another. And we need to be aware that there's a very real danger to it. There's no reason, no need, and there, there's nothing good that comes out of having any kind of sexual conversation with anyone other than with the parent to understand what's right or wrong, other with the child to teach them the truth about the Word of God, or other with friends that are currently struggling with that problem. It's for the purpose of teaching truth, and that's it. There's nothing to joke about. It's nothing to laugh about. Sexual jokes, sexual innuendos, there's nothing funny about it at all. Although what's interesting is it's the thing that comedians use all the time, isn't it? It's the things talk show hosts discuss all the time. It's something that makes light and trivialize, it makes trivi- trivial those things that are precious in the sight of God. Sexual, sensual conversation should never take place. Third thing was weak commitments. Weak commitment to God. Weak commitment to a standard, which is true. The word of God is truth. And God says to sanctify us or separate us in truth. We're to be people who represent the truth. Uh, Weak commitments to God and his word. Weak commitments if we're married to our spouse and fidelity. Weak commitments if we're single to the truth of the word of God that says that all sex outside of marriage is wrong. Weak commitments uh, that really revolve around whether we're going to believe what God says is right or not. And so we look at these things, and these are traps or characteristics of seduction that lead us into having problems in that area of life. If we are not committed to the Word of God, and we are not committed to what He says is true, and we're not committed to fidelity if we're married, then anything and everything is possible from that point. We need to have a strong commitment. We better take a good, hard look at where we stand before we fall. Number four is spiritual confusion. And we talked a little bit about that last time, and I want to share a couple more points with you because I think it's very important. Spiritual confusion. This particular gal in Proverbs 7, 14, and 15, as she comes to this young man and she offers him um, uh, the possibilities of having a sexual experience with her. She's a married woman whose husband is out of town. And she goes to this man and says, I have made peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. She's saying that everything is right between me and God. Everything is okay. 
And her attitude is, hey, you know what? There's nothing wrong. And it's kind of like a person today that's having sex outside of marriage, a single person that's having sex, saying, you know what? I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling in that area, and that's okay. Because at least I'm not struggling with all these other things. That's my one weak area, and that's okay. And we resign ourselves to saying that that's not a problem. Or, you know, it's kind of like the guy who's out cheating on his wife. You know what? I'm committed to my wife and my family, but she doesn't meet my needs sexually. So, you know what? I'm getting it taken care of in the way that I think is right and trying to minimize all the consequences of it. And you know what? I mean, it's okay. I mean, because God wants me to be happy, not at the expense of truth and not at the expense of his word. He doesn't. And happiness isn't going to come about that way anyway. And so we sit in the pews and we sit in our churches and we sit in Bible studies and this kind of stuff is going on behind the scenes and God knows it and he's not fooled by any of it, but we don't know any of it. And so you sit there and you listen to this and you think, I'm okay with God. No, you're not. You're not all right with God. And if you know the Lord and you've come to know him as your personal savior, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is true in your life and you know sitting here what I'm saying is true because God's been convicting you about your behavior and he's saying stop doing it. It's interesting, though, we can really distort the truth. Jessica Hahn, in her subsequent interviews after it was disclosed that she had sex with Jim Baker and that whole situation, told that she was led to believe by these people that were involved that she was actually serving the Lord by providing sexual favors for, quote, this man of God. That was what she said. That's what she was led to believe. And that kind of manipulation is going on all the time. It's a bunch of nonsense of people that are in power that stand behind a pulpit and stand behind some charisma or personality or whatever and they manipulate the word of God and they justify it by using scripture. Oh, King David was a man of God and he had several wives. King David had this. Solomon had all this. Yeah, you know what? And they forgot about all the consequences and the truth of the word of God. And so they stand and they confuse and manipulate and deceive people and think that everything's okay. Well, you're not okay and it's not right. We need to stop playing games in this area of our life. God's standard has not, will not change, no matter how many people are doing it, and no matter what powerful people in our society are participating in such behavior, it's wrong. Interesting, the problem, here's a, here's a sex survey that came out. Uh, 3,321 men ages 20 to 39 uh, were asked by the uh, Battelle Human Affairs Research Center in Seattle. That was uh, the group that put together the survey. So although the median number of female sex partners, these were men that were interviewed, the median number of female sex partners was 7.3 for all men in this age group. It was lowest among married men, 5.3, and highest among the formerly married, 14.7. So it's kind of like if you get divorced, you know, you're getting held back from going out and conquering the world. So, you know, whatever. Among men who have never married or tend to be younger was 8.1. Now, here's an, interesting, here's an interesting part of the survey. Conservative Protestants reported an average of 5.4 sex partners. Other Protestants, more liberal ones, I would imagine, reported 7.7. Catholics came in at 6.9. And people belonging to other religions or to no religion at all, 8.4. Protestants, 7.7. Those who'd have no religious belief, 8.4. Wow, there's a big difference, huh? Man, talk about spiritual confusion. Here's a good one for you. Dear Abby, I need an answer as soon as possible. I just found out my 16-year-old daughter is having a sexual relationship with her boyfriend. He's 17. They've been dating since they were 14. After the initial shock, after the initial shock we talked about birth control with pills and condoms. I'm not real happy about it, but I don't know what else to do. Her boyfriend seems like a real decent kid. After all, they met at church. 
You know what? We laugh about that. <laughs> you want to laugh? It's happening right here. A whole bunch of people meet in the church that are hooking up and doing things that are wrong before God, and it's all in deceit, and it's all part of the confusion that we're okay. Look, if you're going to screw around with someone, you might as well make it with the church kid, huh? Because after all, you know, they got a good moral foundation. That's how messed up we are. We're all messed up. But that's what's happening. And we need to wake up, and we need to open our eyes, and we need to see it. Here's a, a spiritual confusion. This is great. My partner and I, we stopped for lunch the other day. And uh, we're at this place, this burger place, and we're sitting there. And uh, there's these four guys sitting in the booth right behind us. And it's always fascinating to, because to, uh, we, we ran out of stuff to talk about like a couple months ago. And uh, <laughs> so it's like, you know, you just kind of listen to what's going on around you. So these four guys are behind us, and they're sharing with one another, and they're having this conversation. And one guy is the obvious, the man of wisdom, and he's offering counsel. And he says to the other guy, he says, you know, you've got to stop dwelling on all those negative things. You know, you've got to think about the things that are good and the things that are right and not dwell on all that. And I'm going, man, this guy's quoting Philippians 4. That's exciting. It's exciting to hear these four gruff-looking construction guys and they're sharing all this. He goes, like, he goes, you know, like when my wife and I are having problems, he goes, hey, I just go into the other room and I just start fantasizing about all the women I meet during the day. Oh, man, I was like, gee, you know, that's a kind of a distortion of Philippians 4. But, uh, you know... Started out sounding pretty good, and it kind of went downhill from there. But it's kind of like how messed up we are. It's like out of one side of our mouth, we say something that is accurate, and the other side, we're all messed up. So here's this parent. Hey, they're good kids. They met at church. It's wonderful. Let's teach them about birth control. Hey, let's teach them about what's right and what's wrong. But they're going to do it anyway. Hey, you know what? Sexual behavior is no different than any other behavior as far as sin is concerned. We have the same tendency to lie, to cheat, to steal, to be angry at things that we shouldn't be angry at. We have the same tendency to do all those things. And I don't hear anybody saying, you know what? My kid's going to lie. I'm going to teach him to lie as accurately as possible. <laughs> My kid has a propensity to steal. And I'm going to teach him how to be smart when they steal. My kid has a propensity to come unglued and be angry and have outbursts and I'll teach him what he can throw in the house and what he can't throw in the house. You know, are we idiots or what? This is ridiculous. They're going to do it anyway. That's the argument. They're going to do it anyway. Are we nuts? We need to start teaching them why they shouldn't do it anyway and why it's wrong. And that's what this is all about. Spiritual confusion. We're a bunch of messed up people and we can sit in our churches and we can sit in Bible studies and we can claim to be Christians and we can even read our Bibles every morning and we can be out having every kind of sexual behavior and being involved in sexual behavior that's wrong before God and somehow in our own mind we can justify it, rationalize it and think that we're okay. We're not. We're not. And the quicker that we realize it, the better off we're all going to be. Now here's something that's interesting. The fifth characteristic of sexual seduction or characteristic of seduction is that of immodest clothing. Proverbs 7.10. You know, not many people want to discuss this. The fact is that there's a way to dress that is wrong before God. There's a way to dress that is right before God. And what's funny is every mother can see it when her daughter gets dressed. Is that true, ladies? Is that the truth? You can see it, man. You know if your daughter, you ain't wearing that. Or where's the rest of what you're supposed to be wearing? You got something on under that? Huh? What's the deal here? Oh, Mom. Hey, you know what? It's like 
every woman can recognize if her daughter has fallen into that trap. And we need to understand that that is true. There are ways that you can dress that are right before God. There are ways that you dress that are wrong before God. And we need to understand that. It's like this particular woman who is trying to seduce this man. And there, there, he met a, and there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. Ladies, we need to understand something. You need to understand something. Men are attracted by what they see. We are perceptionally aroused. That's why you can fight all day long with your husband. You get out of the shower, and he's like, hey, babe, 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 babe. <laughs> and you're like, what is your problem? You haven't talked to me all day. We've been fighting for a week. What do you? It's like, I don't, I don't see, I, I don't remember any of that. And they just got this stupid glazed look on his face. And you can't figure out what's going on. But then you look and you say, oh, I'm naked. And it's funny because you know you're torturing the man. But men are aroused by what they see. It's a very simple fact of life. I mean, that's why, you know, 12, 13-year-old guys see a gal walk down the street. They turn their head. They don't know why. They haven't figured out why yet. They just know that's what you do. I like my son, he's 13. Ryan, what are you looking at? <laughs> he just giggles, you know, he giggles, he laughs, you know, it's kind of like, well, what are you looking at? It's like, you know. <laughs> See, but that's the way we are. That's the way God made us. And that's why he warns women that you need to be careful about how you dress. You got your Bibles, look at 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. We'll just take a look at this. This is important because it all ties into what we're talking about. What's that? Hey, takes after his dad. Let me tell you something. Look at someone gave me. I've been very cautious. I've been hesitant to put this up here, but I'm going to stick it up here now while people are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's a man, Tom Ferner, perhaps, who comes, <laughs> who, who comes to this guy. He says, Tom, Tom says, hey, do you have a tape that will prevent me from being obnoxious? And he goes to the, he goes to the self-help tape store. And, and the man selling tapes, which could be me, goes and he gets some duct tape and tapes his mouth shut and says, how is that? Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Hey, someone gave it to me. I had to share it. I want to encourage these things, you know. I like this group participation. I'll tell you for you. And thanks for being such a good sport. <laughs> all right, all right, let's see where we're. Immodest closing, 1 Timothy chapter 2. All right, where are we at? Okay, here we go, 9 and 10. Check this out. Okay. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> hey, ho, oh, this has become my favorite passage. Gold, pearls, jewelry, expensive clothing, oh. Oh, but that may be taken out of context. But rather, by means of good works, as befits women, making a claim to godliness. All right, let's go through this and, and take a look at it. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. Adorn themselves. It's talking about beauty. God is not into ugliness. 
You say, you're kidding me. Look at my husband. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah, but no, God is not into ugliness. He's into, hey, beauty. God makes things, and he saw that things were good when he made it, and they were beautiful, and God's into beauty. So he's saying, hey, you know what? Ladies, adorn yourselves. Make yourselves look beautiful. That's okay. That's a good thing. And that has to do with our outward appearance. But then he says, with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Modestly comes from a Greek word, cosmos, which refers to the universe, which means everything in order. Make sure that you got everything in order. We get the English word cosmetics. Make sure you put everything on right. Get it all in the right, proper order. You know, if you're putting on makeup and you weren't putting the right stuff in the right place, it just wouldn't look the same, would it? So we get it all in there and it's all in order and it's orderly and it's arranged and it's neat and it's beautiful and it's okay. But then there's some things that refer to what goes on on the inside of a person's heart. Modesty, as, as you go through it, proper clothing, modest discreetly. Or propriety and moderation, some uh, text has. That has to do with what's on the inside of a person. See, you can fix yourself up on the outside, but God knows your heart. And he knows why you're doing what you're doing. He knows the intention behind why you're making yourself look the way that you look. And so he, he, he's challenging women to consider what is very obvious in this passage, that there are ways to dress that are wrong before God because the intention of the heart is not correct. As you go back to that Proverbs 7, there's a woman who meets him with the attire dressed like a harlot and has a crafty heart. The heart has to do with our intentions, our, our motives, and they're demonstrated by our outward actions. So he's telling women that you've got to be very careful, and it's a double-edged sword, basically, or two sides of a coin. God says, arrange yourself so you're attractive and that you look beautiful, but be careful about the intent of why you're doing what you're doing and what you wear. And in this particular context, it has to do with, you know, uh, women that are married, has to do with marital relationships, has to do with a husband's involvement in this process. Now, what gets very difficult, and here's what we need to understand, as men, as husbands, if our wives are wearing something or going out in public with clothes that you do not appreciate or that you think is a little too revealing, then you need to have a discussion with her about the problem that she needs to understand, and that is that men are visually stimulated, and why are you going out to try to stimulate other men? You've got me. You see what I'm saying? And that's not to be, uh, take a dictatorial approach about making sure that you okay everything that your wife wears, but it's about teaching truth about what's correct as far as the Bible's concerned of human behavior. I don't want my wife dressed as someone who is revealing all of her goods. Because those goods are mine. And no one else needs to see them, nor no one else needs to appreciate them like I do. And so we need to have those discussions. That gets very sensitive, doesn't it? Because there are women who say, who do you think you are telling me what to wear? You don't even know how to dress yourself. Well, that's true. And I know that's true of me. And it's not a matter of me picking out her clothes to make them match. It's a matter of me saying, hey, you know what? You look very nice. You are modestly dressed. You are arranged in a way that is beautiful before God. And you're a very beautiful woman. And you don't have to have clothes on that stink and are painted onto your body. And you don't have to expose parts of your body that aren't for anybody else anyway. And young gals, you need to listen to your parents when they tell you, you know what? You look dangerous. And we need to understand that that's our responsibility to teach that truth because young gals and even older women that haven't been taught that truth don't know that that's a reality of life. Where are you going dressed like that? 
Where are you going dressed like that? What they're trying to say, young people, and they don't articulate it quite the way that they should, is that, you know what, we're concerned for you because you need to understand something. There's a bunch of horny guys out there who get excited by what they see, and you're putting yourself in a great risk position. And sometimes we get upset because it's an indication of the heart of our own children, and that's what upsets us more than anything, more than the danger that they're going to experience when they go out in the world. It's kind of like, man, what in the world? Haven't we taught you what's right that you would even consider dressing like that? And the obvious answer is probably not. Because you haven't taken the time to have a conversation and a discussion. Everything's an argument. You can't argue with people and teach truth. You argue with them for the purpose of teaching truth, but you articulate it in a manner that someone will listen to you because you make sense. Not because I'm your parent and I'm telling you what to wear. Are you nuts? Weren't you a kid? When somebody told you that, what did you say? Watch this. You didn't say it out loud, but you did everything you could to do what you were told not to do because you wanted to show them that you could do it and get away with it. Why? Because no one ever taught you why you shouldn't do it. Or the dangers that's involved. Or why I love you so much, I don't want you to do that, and here's the reasons for it. They just tell people what to do. People don't respond real well to being told what to do without giving them information to make a decision. We need to help one another understand the truth of the Word of God. And so as you look at this, we must communicate with one another that there are ways to dress that are right before God, there are ways to dress that are wrong before God, it has to do with the intention of the heart, it has to do with how God has created men, it has to do with men being visually stimulated, it has to do with all those things, and we need to understand that, we need to be aware of it, and we need to recognize it as one of the characteristics of seduction that leads to sexual sin. Let me tell you something, lady, if you're married and you're dressing yourself to kill, that's exactly what's going to happen because you're going to end up in all kind of trouble. You want to expose what God has given you to give to your husband, you want to expose it to everybody else, then somewhere along the line, you're going to sit and say, how in the world did this happen to me? How did I end up having an affair? How did this happen? I don't even know how it happened. Well, you know what? It this way, and this is a process, and God's yelling warning the whole way. You bought into the verbal compliments at the office. You start laughing and giggling about sexual innuendo. You had a weak commitment to your husband or a weak commitment to God. You have spiritual confusion. I can do it and get away with it. You wore immodest clothing. It's a process, folks. Don't you understand that? It just doesn't happen overnight. You just don't wake up one day and say, how did this happen to me? Here's how it's happening to you. And what's wonderful about it is that you have an opportunity to stop it before it gets any further along the process. Number six, can't ignore this, physical contact. Proverbs 5, verse 20. Why should you, my son, be enaptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? You know, this could be very difficult to understand because the Bible is very clear. Hey, you know what? Sometimes what the doctor orders is we need a hug and we need a kiss. You know what I'm saying? We need a hug of encouragement. We need a kiss. We need to be supported. We need to be touched by one another. We need to uphold one another. And to say, God's saying, hey, all physical contact is wrong, is wrong to say that. God is telling us to encourage each other and to embrace each other and to hug each other and to mourn with each other, rejoice with one another. And all of that involves touching and communicating our our love for each other through touch. And that's very important. Some of the greatest things that Jesus ever did on the face of the earth involved him touching another person. We can't lose contact or, or, or we can't lose reality with that truth. We need to be people that touch. We got men and women who have grown up and said, my dad never hugged me, my dad never kissed me, my, son, my, my, my dad never hugged me as a man, you know, a son that grows up. My dad never touched me, he never patted me on the back, he never took me into his arms and hugged me. Man, we need to be doing that. That's right. We need to do that. 
Because if we're not hugging and we're not kissing our own kids and showing them we love them, some other idiot will come along like a spur posse guy and say, hey, I'll hug you and I'll kiss you and I'll show you how much I love you until I score a point and then I'll stink and dump you and throw you out into the street. We need to do that. We need to understand that. But we also need to understand the Bible says we're to greet one another with a holy kiss. Because there must be an unholy kiss. It doesn't mean it involves a tongue. It may mean that it involves the intention of the heart. You know what? I've been hugged by people that it was more than a hug. I know that. I've been kissed by people that I know it was more than a kiss. And so have you. And I've seen it happen in the back here. I've seen it happen in the aisles. We hug each other. We kiss one another. But what in the world is going on in our heart? Sometimes we don't even know and God knows. We need to be very careful about how we touch one another. What we're, we're intending by that touch. Because that touch, it all starts with a simple kiss. It all starts with a little extra hug. We need to be careful about that. But it doesn't mean we need to stop doing it. But we need to be careful about the intention of the heart. We need to recognize it's all true. All of these things are true. The characteristics of seduction, the things that lead to sexual sin, all start with seemingly very innocent situations. All of them. You look at those. What's wrong with the compliment? Absolutely nothing. Unless the intention is to lead to sexual sin. And sometimes we don't even know that's our intention. See, that's why our heart's so wicked and deceitful above all else, and who can understand it but only God. That's why we need to turn the objective standard of the Word of God because we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. We think it's innocent. God says it's not. We think we're dressed innocently. God says you're not. And I'll give you some, um, I'll give you some, uh, fail, you know, some fail-safes. I'll, I'll give you a husband that will care about what you look like. And, and I'll give you, uh, you know, the Word of God that will help you to understand that. And we need to recognize that. You know? And so you go through all this. You know, the wonderful thing about this, you can look at it and say, hey, this is the path to sexual sin. Or you can say, this is the path that I'm on that's leading to sexual sin, and I need to get off this path. That's a healthier response, by the way, than saying, gee, that's right, that's exactly how this all happened. You're better off stopping and jumping off right now and asking God to forgive you and stop those conversations with other people that are leading you to sexual sin and stop wearing clothing that's going to do that and stop having sensual conversations and stop being confused by what you're doing, thinking it's okay if it's not okay, and the Word of God is very simple, and it doesn't get any simpler than this. If you're having sex outside of marriage, it's wrong. How simple can it get? And you're not okay and you need to stop doing it. Because if you don't stop doing it, the consequences are there. There are consequences of wrong choice. And I want to share with you a couple of them because they're important to recognize. See, if we were having more conversations like this in our society, we would have more people that would stop and listen to what was being said. There are consequences to wrong choices. And that's true of everything. You want to steal, there's going to be consequences when you get caught. You want to lie, there'll be consequences when you get caught. If you're prone to angry outbursts and you hit somebody, there's consequences when you get caught. If you are in, involved in sexual behavior that's not right before God, bank on the consequences. They're going to happen. They're real. They're not imaginary. They're true. And one of the consequences is very simple, and that is spiritual defeat. You know, and these aren't in any order, by the way, uh, of severity. They're not in any order of importance. These are all equally true of one another. The first thing is spiritual defeat. Proverbs 5, 21 through 23 says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. 
specifically referring to sexual sin, spiritual defeat. Let me give you two things to consider. Number one, if you're not a Christian, and several people in this survey indicated that they had no religious belief, they didn't believe in God, they didn't believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, they didn't believe in any of that, and so based on the biblical definition, they're not Christians. So if you're not a Christian, the fact is, if God is God, and His Word is true, and His standards are universal, regardless of what you believe, truth is truth. All right, you follow me? So it doesn't make any difference what you believe. Whether you believe God's there or not, it doesn't matter. It's like me saying, I don't believe you're here today. Well, you're here. Now, whether I believe you're not here doesn't change the fact that you are here. That's truth. You got it? So if God is God and His truth is truth and the standards are right, then what he's saying is, number one is, for those who aren't Christians, the fact that you would participate in sexual activity that God says is a violation of His standards, it's an indication of your heart and that your heart's not right before the God who made you. And so the spiritual defeat in this particular case is, is that you, although you may think that you're a Christian, even in some cases, and that you may think you believe something, the indication is if you're, if you're doing things that God says are wrong behavior, and you have no convictions about the wrong behavior, and you have no convictions about his standard, and you don't believe that his standard, or you're one of those people who say, well, how do you really know the Bible is true? It was written by a bunch of men. Okay, well, there's a flag that goes up and says, you know what? You're not, you don't have a right relationship with God based on his definition. You are doing things that God says are wrong, and therefore you are defeated spiritually, and you will have to, <clears throat> and you will have to pay for your crime. Someone's got to pay for your crime, and it's going to be you. And so what he's saying is it's a good indication. Our sexual behavior is a very good indication of whether we are Christians or not Christians. Interesting, isn't it? And so God, by our activity, can indict us by our behavior and say, you are guilty of violating my standard, therefore there is a price to be paid, and the consequences are that you are defeated spiritually and that you will pay one day for that sin. And all it takes is one sin to keep you out of the presence of God. And so that's it. You're busted, you're guilty. You live a whole life that way, you'll die and you'll await judgment, you'll appear before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ, and he will indict you on the fact that you violated one standard, yet alone probably hundreds of others, but the truth of the matter is here's one that we can look at as an example, and he'll just say to you, you're guilty and you're going to hell, or actually lake of fire, for all of eternity. That's the way that works. Now, that's for those who don't claim to believe anything. The standard is true whether you believe it or not. The consequences are true whether you believe it or not. And, and the price you'll pay is going to be true whether you believe it or not. The sad reality is that some of us have to be proven and they'll wait and we'll see. Well, it'll be too late then. Now, for Christians, the spiritual defeat is really interesting because one of the quickest ways to be defeated spiritually is to be involved in sexual sin. You can fool people around you, just like this text says, for the ways of man are before the eyes of God. And he ponders all of our paths. Hebrew 9 says, you know what? Our activities are laid open and bare to him to whom we have to do. Speaking of Jesus Christ and the fact that he will judge us. God sees everything that we're doing. So you can sit in church and you can sit wherever and you can sit, you know, at young people at the table with your parents and you can pretend everything is going good and as adults we can sit and talk with one another and pretend that all of our sexual activities are honorable and pleasing before God and God goes like this. That's a joke because I know exactly what you're doing. I see your heart, I see what you're doing, I know what's going on in your life, and you blow smoke at everybody you want to, but they don't, they don't have to judge you anyway, although there is a certain amount of judgment God and acts of one another here on earth, and we'll talk about that next time, but the reality is that all sin is before God, and we'll be judged by God. So whether we're fooling each other or not, it doesn't make any difference at all, does it? All things are laid open and bare to him to whom we have to do. God is judge, and he'll judge us for our actions, and he sees what's going on. 
So the confusion of sexual sin is that there's a contradiction or a hypocrisy that takes place in the life of a person who claims to believe one thing. I'm a Christian, but I can still do this. That's nuts. That's wrong. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe God. I believe what His Word says. I believe His Word is true and it's accurate, that it's a standard which we live by. I believe all of that stuff, but in this one area, I don't. Oh, really? How do you think you can pick and choose? This Bible, I mean, it's not a Chinese restaurant we're dealing with here. You don't select the ones you like and dislike off the menu. It's like, hey, it's either all true or it's not true. You either believe all of it or none of it. And so what he's saying is our spiritual defeat takes place when we can believe on one hand that I believe God, I love God, I want to obey his commandments, but on the other hand, I'm going to continue in this sexual behavior that's wrong before God. You're defeated spiritually, and you know what usually happens is this. You can't take a hard stand on truth because you've got guilt in your life. You can't be bold in sharing with others the goodness of God and how they need to come to know Jesus Christ and how he can free them from the traps that they're in and the sin that they're in and all the rest of that and free them from judgment. You can't share any of that because you're guilty in that area of your life. And so what happens spiritually, we become defeated and we're neutralized because our effectiveness of service is gone and it's, and it's null and void. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that true of every sin in your life? When something is wrong between you and God and you don't confess it, you don't agree that it's wrong, you don't repent from it and stop doing it, isn't it true that you can't look another person in the face who's struggling with sin and confront them and to help them and to love them through it and to teach them the truth? That is the truth. You can't do it. And it's only a brazen, callous person that can stand and teach or preach or do that kind of stuff when that kind of garbage is going on in their life. And that's a scary thing to think about. We can't live double standards. We've got to be open and honest before God so that it gives us the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction to be able to teach truth to people that are struggling with sin in their life. See, you can't do that. And we're defeated spiritually. And so our effectiveness for service is all but gone. The second problem, and one that we rarely talk about, you know, it's kind of like all that we concentrate on in our society is physical disease. That's the only thing that seems to be talked about. If we can just find a cure for AIDS, if we can find a pill for venereal diseases, if we can do all that, we can continue to do this behavior and not have any consequences for it. But you know, there's one, there's one consequence that is, that is far-reaching, that is probably even more severe sometimes than the physical consequences that come along with our decisions, and that's the consequence of emotional distress. The torment of doing that which is wrong before God and the distress that comes to the life of those, first of all, to Christians. But you know what's fascinating to me was whether you're Christian or non-Christian, these things are still true. And listening to that 2020 interview the other night with the Spur Posse and one of the gals who was a victim of it, you know what was amazing to me is the emotional distress was obvious in the interview. Her lack of self-worth, her, her loss of innocence, her lack of self-respect, the guilt, the feelings of failure, the feelings of being used, the heartache, the tears, the rejection, the humiliation were all very apparent in the conversation with that young lady. I love you, I love you, I love you. And then they get what they want. And what was your name again? What, was, what, was, what number were you? 37, 42, 3? I don't remember. But you said you loved me. You said you cared about me. You said how nice I looked. Yeah, I said all those things. But I say that to everybody because it works. See, the emotional distress that goes along with it is far-reaching, isn't it? That's the kind of baggage and the garbage that that poor gal's going to have to carry with her throughout all of her life. She'll carry that little, she'll pull that little wagon behind her. And it breaks my heart because somehow or another we ignore all this stuff. We don't think there's any emotional price tag to pay. We're wrong. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. 
He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will, be, will not be wiped away. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I beg you, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. God clearly teaches that there will be emotional consequences for wrong sexual behavior. And you know what? You talk to an incest victim. You talk to a rape victim. You talk to somebody who had sex before they were married because they loved the guy and they thought they were going to get married and then he dumped them. And she gave what most precious thing that she had to give and she can't give it one time again. Once you lose it, it's gone forever. She gave that up. You talk to someone who's had uh, committed adultery and the destruction that it's caused and the emotional distress that's involved in it and the nightmares and the flashbacks that go along with it. You talk to somebody who's caught up in homosexuality and you tell me there's not emotional distress that goes along with it. You know what's so funny? We can share that consequence. We can talk about that consequence. And we can say that as long as we don't say that, you know what? God not only tells us about it, he forewarns us about it, and he predicts that it will happen. If we mention the Bible, we mention the Word of God, we mention God, then all of a sudden it becomes a religious thing. And it is. It's a moral issue. But it goes far beyond that. Because God cares and he's compassionate. He loves his creation and he says to you and I, hey, listen, these are the consequences that are going to come about with behavior that's wrong. And somehow or another we're supposed to ignore all of that? It's interesting, isn't it? Spiritual defeat. Emotional distress. We've got a lot more stuff that we need to talk about. We're out of time. But we've got next week. Some of us do. Some of us may not. And I guess the point of all that is very simple. You need to ask yourself a very real question. Number one, am I a Christian based on what the Bible teaches and not what I think in my own heart, in my own mind, or whatever? Have you come to the point where you've asked Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life? That you believe that he's God in human flesh, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, which was what we celebrated last week? Do you believe that is true? Have you ever come to the point where you've asked him to be Lord of your life, believing that what the Bible says is true? See, if you have not, then you are guilty before God and his standards. And there's only one way that man can be saved according to the Bible, and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You need to ask yourself that question. Number two is if you are a Christian and you are doing that which you have just found out is wrong before God, then you need to confess or agree with God that your behavior is wrong. You need to repent, which means stop doing it and turn from it. And the exciting thing is as a Christian, with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have the ability by the strength of God to do what's right before God. See, he never asks us to do anything that he doesn't already empower us to be able to do. If you are committed to God and you're committed to his word, then the Bible teaches that you will have the power within you to live a life that's pleasing before God. Not in only this area of life, but every area of life. We need to teach the truth because it's truth. Just because you grew up believing something is right and just because everybody's telling you around you that something is right doesn't make it right. The Word of God makes it right. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity again just to be candid, uh, to be bold as far as your truth is concerned. God, I just pray for those who aren't sure that if they died today, where they would go or what would happen to them, that they can know the assurance of spending an eternity with you by simply believing that Jesus is Lord and asking Him to come into their life. God, we need never to forget that as the primary purpose in which you leave us here to share that with others. 
Because without the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, the behavior that is pleasing to you is impossible. Not only is it impossible, but it doesn't even make any sense. We live in a world that's so confused uh, by what they believe to be right or wrong, or even if anything's right or wrong anymore. And the consequences so far impacts our society, and the problems that it's creating is devastating, not only individually, but collectively. God, we need to turn back to your word to understand the truth. God, as believers, we need to be convicted and convinced that your word is true beyond a shadow of a doubt to the point where it changes the way that we think and the way that we live. You tell us as you love us that if we love you, that we'll obey your commandments. There's no greater proof of our love for you than the way that we live our lives. God, I just pray particularly for all those who are single, those who are, that are young people that are in a society that is trying to convince them that sexual behavior... You know, if it's safe, whatever that means, you can't put a condom on emotional damage. You can't clean up the heart of a person that has been taken advantage of. You can't take a pill for that. God, help us to see that the consequences are greater than just physical danger. God, help us to understand your truth and to be people that are compelled to live it, to teach it, and to act upon it in every area of society. God, we just thank you and we praise you for loving us so much that you sent Christ, that you give us your word as a guideline to live, and that you give us your Holy Spirit within our life to give us the power to do that which is right before you. And all God's people said, amen.